Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. If you are headed into work or otherwise have to just get along with your day and can't stay with us for the hour, you can always hear today's full edition of Detroit Today on the Detroit Today podcast. Go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. Download and subscribe to Detroit Today, and you can listen to us whenever or wherever you want. The image published around the world from Charlottesville was of a sea of white men holding torches, their mouths twisted up with hateful sentiments about white power. The feeling conveyed was palpable and obvious. It was about anger. This white male rage that we've seen put on display in recent months and years We know that helped elect a president who assured them that their nationalist views would be validated in the White House, in the staff he put together to manage that White House, and in policy. But we were also told that one of the things that carried Donald Trump to the presidency was about economic insecurity. Was that phrase just a thinly veiled sort of cover for the idea that white anger was really behind the election of Donald Trump. And what's the relationship between those two things? We have been talking for a very long time in this country about the way the economy has changed. Think about it. Your parents, your grandparents, they worked a job, probably a good job, for most of their lives and were able to not just keep up, but get ahead. They were able to send their kids to college. They were able to save for retirement. Today, lots of folks work more than one job just to keep the lights on, just to keep a car in the driveway. And the idea of sending their kids to college or the idea of retiring at 65 or even 70 is really, really distant. But how much of that anger when we talk about white people in this country is really related to resentment of the progress that, for instance, minorities have made? How much of it is rooted just in the idea of things having changed culturally in America since the 50s or the 60s? How much of the anger that we're seeing is tied to the economy and how much of it is rooted in a system that is designed from the outset to favor white people and white men in particular, and the perceived threat to that system. We want to spend the hour today talking about that subject. And of course, we want to hear from you. What do you think when you see a horde of angry white men holding torches in Charlottesville? Do you think that anger is about economic insecurity? Or is it just grassroots racism that has found a convenient foothold in modern America? What do you think is fueling this rage among white people in America? Think of what we saw the other night when the president had a rally in Arizona. The things that were said, the things that he said that people cheered. Some of them were tinged absolutely with race and ethnicity. So is this really about economic insecurity or is this about racism? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to our Facebook page and put your comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work your comments into the conversation. What do you think is behind 
the white rage, the white anger that we are seeing on display in America right now. And joining me now to talk about that subject is Joe Fegan. He's a distinguished professor of sociology at Texas A&M University. Joe, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. So let's start with that initial question. Is there a tie between the economic woes that people face and the frustration around those economic woes uh, and the more nakedly racist anger that we see in places like Charlottesville? What's the relationship between those two things? There is a small tie to it, but it's not the main reason that whites are uh, especially young white men are out in the streets protesting as neo-Nazis and white supremacists. What's so striking about the protesters is the ones who are armed are, armed are carrying about $1,000 worth of guns and military equipment. Uh, the ones who aren't armed and some of the ones who are are wearing polo shirts and carrying tiki torches. Mm-hmm and driving nice cars. The guy who rammed his car into the crowd rammed a pretty expensive car into that crowd. Mm -hmm. Uh, This suggests these guys are well above the middle income, the median income in this country. Lots, probably a majority of these uh, white supremacist protesters, neo-Nazis, are solidly middle class, upper middle class. Uh, They're leaders like Richard Spencer is a dropout graduate student at Duke University, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, David Duke uh, has been to college and claims a Ph.D. Many of their leaders are college-educated. The people who are really hurting economically in this country are overwhelmingly not white. Right. Right. They're blacks, Latinos. Uh, So that argument that Economics is the main reason for this recent surge and overt white supremacy just doesn't jibe with the empirical data. Yeah. And and so when, for instance, we analyze the success of Donald Trump in 2016 at the at the the polls, what do we what do we attribute that to? Was it really this economic despair that's real in America and that many many white people do experience, or was it just that that was a cover for good old fashioned racism, the same issues and systemic issues we've been struggling with for centuries in this country? It's both, but it's primarily uh, white fears of racial change. You know, the median black household in this country earns about 59% of the income of the median white household. Yes. And has about 5% of the economic net worth of the median white household. So whites in this country are pretty well off relative to everybody else. And if you look at who voted for Trump, his voters had substantially higher median income than those who voted for Clinton. And they were well above the median income for this country. Now, certainly there are whites who are hurting economically. So that plays some role. But accenting it as the main reason just doesn't jibe again with the empirical data. Yeah. Uh, These whites, and you see it in surveys, 
most whites still hold pretty racist views about people of color. Uh, survey after survey demonstrates that. Uh, they have been conned and manipulated by the right-wing media to believe all kinds of myths about racial unicorns. You know, they think white men are losing power in this country. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a fact for them. Get them to estimate what percentage of top corporate executives in the United States are white men. It's 93%. Sure. Of those who run the country's economy are elite white men. Uh, blacks make up 0.8% of top corporate executives, almost none, four, last I saw. Mm -hmm. Women make a very small, of a very small percentage of top corporate executives, Latinos too. Uh, so whatever the economic problems are that ordinary white men face, they're created overwhelmingly by elite white men in Congress, corporate CEOs, and other places. Yeah. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number to join the conversation. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to our Facebook page or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work your comments into the conversation. We are talking about white anger in America. Think of what we saw in Charlottesville just a few weeks ago: a very large group of white men with torches mouthing hateful sentiments of white power. Is that what really is behind the anger that we hear about all the time in America that is typically attributed to the economy, the idea that it has become more and more difficult for average people just to keep up or to get ahead? 313-577-1019 uh, is that number on the phones. Megan on Facebook says, lower income white folks have every reason to be mad, but their anger is misplaced. Everyone in the bottom half of the economy should be mad at the top 20% for stealing all the gains of the last 25 years. If you uh, want to join that conversation on Facebook, uh, we will try to work your comments in. If you want to go to Twitter and hashtag us, we can do the same. Let's go to the phones here Tom in Northwest Detroit. Tom, welcome to Detroit Today. Yeah, good morning to both of you. <clears throat> you know what, Steve, and, and, and your guest, and the way I'm looking at this thing is this. I mean, if you look at us as a people and the way that we have been thought of and about, we're less than human. I mean, it's in the Constitution, three-fifths, all right? And then when you look at what we've achieved, I mean, it's it's a heck of a whole lot compared to what they don't want to see. And then, too, with the election of President Obama, not once but twice, I mean, this kind of, like, scared the devil out of some of these folks. Because what he did was, you know, in terms of President Obama being elected, he defied the stereotype. You can't sit there and point a finger and say, well, this is how they are now. Because the man, meaning Obama, sat in the most powerful seat in the world, and that was the office of the President of the United States. And, you know, uh, and when you look at, even with government, all the way from national government all the way down to local government, we are interspersed all through there in positions of authority. And, you know, and, and then, too, I remember there was a survey taken back some years ago here in Michigan, and they were talking about, you know, the people who value the college education. 
only 24% of that survey, the people that they surveyed, said that a college education was, you know, valuable. Sure. And, I mean, you know, we, when I said we, meaning people of color, we've done a good job in terms of taking advantage of, you know, college and that kind of thing, but we can also do a better job. And, you know, you, you understand where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tom, thanks very much okay. for the call. and. The comments, uh, Joe Fegan, distinguished professor of sociology at Texas A&M, talk about how much what we're seeing right now has to do with Barack Obama. Of course, when he was in office, we got used to seeing these sort of expressions of anger at him, sometimes couched in other terms, sometimes more nakedly racist. Are we seeing now a sort of prolonged tantrum, I guess, in reaction to the idea that there was an African-American man who was president. Yes, in both of the Obama elections, a substantial majority of whites voted against him, both times. Yes. White voters in the majority did not support Obama as president. And then for Trump, they voted very substantially for Trump. You know, Obama was elected very heavily by voters of color. And Clinton's... Um, you know, substantial majority vote was substantially people of color, voters of color. Too. Yes, yes. In a real democracy, she would be president of the United States. She won by nearly three million votes. Of, in fact, and, in every other democracy on the planet, other than yeah, the, we've the got United a, States. we've got the we've got the the vote loser as a president uh, of the United States. And he was put there by an overwhelming majority. I think like 60% of white male voters voted for him. And 50, some odd percent of white female voters for him. Uh, Yes, many white voters uh, didn't want Obama. They made racist jokes about it on their websites and web pages and in the backstage settings with friends and relatives because I've studied that. I've gotten white college students uh, to keep diaries of what goes on in the backstages, and they make racist jokes about black people, including Obama. These are our well-educated young whites. Uh, So white America, in the majority, never strongly supported Obama, and that's probably part of this backlash. But I think more important than that is the white fears that black people and brown people are growing in power in the society and they don't want that. Yeah. Uh, Tana on Facebook says, I know plenty of white people who, whether they are actually in poor economic shape or not, feel strongly that their economic security is under threat. Combine that with a fear of cultural change and, yes, good old-fashioned racism, and I can see how they would feel the way they do. That doesn't mean that their worldview jibes with the reality, and it doesn't mean that I in any way agree with them, but I can see their perspective for what it is. The question I'm struggling with is, how the heck do we counter this? Hannah, thank you very much for that comment. Let's go to Matt in Gross Point. Matt, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, how are you? Good. Um, um, I believe uh, pretty much along the same lines as some of the other people have called in and made comments. I don't think that there's any actual uh, economic loss that these people have been uh, experiencing. 
but I do think that it's the fear of it. If you look at some of the placards, some of the chants they were saying, they were saying, Jew will not replace us. We will not be replaced. So this this fear of being displaced by other groups that's driving them to coalesce into this 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 frenzied mob who feels that somehow or another that they are under a threat by people that largely they are uh are feel are undesirable. Uppity women and black folks and transgender people and all of these people who are very, very different from uh your your average white Anglo Saxon Protestant male. Yeah. Uh, Matt, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Uh, I think uh, th- th- that's a really interesting and important insight into this. The the idea that this is about the fear of loss of power and not loss of power itself. And I think uh, Joe Fegan, in, in the sort of analysis of how those two things relate to each other across economic despair and racism, I mean, that, that may be what that tie is. It is fear of loss of power in both cases that maybe unites those two interests. Yes, and of course, there, the white, white people's racist views have been exploited. They've been conned for centuries that black people are the enemy or brown people are the enemy. Many whites listen to Fox News and other right-wing sources, and they get this drilled into their heads that people of color are responsible for their for the whites economic troubles but if you think carefully about that the most economically distressed populations in this country are people of color let me repeat that the most economically distressed populations in this country are people of color and they do not join neo-nazi groups right right so it's got to be more than economics yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's this, yes, it is fear of being displaced, but a lot of that is grossly exaggerated or, in fact, not true. And it's been drilled into their heads uh, by parents, friends, their networks, right-wing white media of various kinds. Because, like I said, you can go through our institutions in this country. They're still at the top run by white men. Yeah, yeah. Overwhelmingly. Yeah. Okay, Joe Fegan, distinguished professor of sociology at Texas A&M, author of many books on racism in America. Racist America explores the roots and conditions of racism in the country, argues that despite advancements during the civil rights movement, U.S. remains fundamentally racist. Thank you very, very much for being here with us on Detroit Today, Joe. Thank you for the invitation. Okay. All right. Up next, we're going to talk to an economist and a civil rights activist about the intersection of economics and bigotry. And of course, we want to stay you with you in the conversation, keep you in that conversation. Go to Facebook and Twitter to join it. Uh, you can also call us at 313-577-1019. We'll be right back on Detroit Today. News, music, culture, and community. Every day. Every day. Every day. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's public radio station.
You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking all hour about the rise in white anger in America, or at least the visibility of white anger recently, and what's causing that? What is causing white people to feel as frustrated and angry as they seemed in Charlottesville a few weeks ago? Is it about just good old-fashioned racism? Is this still a country in which many, many people just don't want to accept the progress that we've made on the racial front in the last 50 years? Or are there real economic underpinnings here? What would more economic opportunity look like uh, in the context of these tensions? Would it make them go away because they are really what is driving them? Or are these two things unrelated? We talked in the first segment with a professor from Texas A&M who says it's both and, that there is a connection between this anger and economic insecurity, but that the overwhelming influence here is structural racism, the persistence of structural racism. Uh, This segment, we want to talk a little more about that, but also about the struggles in the economy and what that's doing to people. Uh, Joining us now is Reverend Jim Wallace. He's an author and civil rights activist, president and founder of Sojourners. Jim, welcome to Detroit Today. Glad to be back. Yeah. So uh, again, let's start with this question. Uh, Is what we're seeing in places like Charlottesville ultimately driven by the economic insecurity that we know exists in many places in America, but of course has taken front and center in the white community. I mean, you think about uh, the explanations for why a state like Michigan, for instance, went for Donald Trump in the 2016 election. Everyone says that was about the inability of Hillary Clinton to connect with those voters on an economic basis. But what we've seen since Trump has been elected is a rise in the sort of visible anger that is about race among white people. So so from your perspective, how are these two things related or are they related at all? Well, it's a great question. And as you know, I'm, I'm from Detroit, uh-huh. my hometown. And uh, I remember uh, back when I was a kid growing up in Redford Township um, that my little church was almost was all white. And it was almost all white working class guys, families uh, with no college. And they were for GM and Chrysler and Detroit Edison, where my dad worked. And and there was no economic insecurity. They were all solidly middle class. They had a union. They had pensions. And if their if their son or daughter wanted a job at the same company, they'd have it. It was a lifetime job. People can't imagine that now, but that was true. Yet the racism was deep in that church. And I got kicked out of that church as a 15-year-old kid for raising issues around racism. So your your professor who said both hand is right, but unpacking that is important because because the elites have always tried to to separate white working class and poor rural whites from blacks by using economic fear and rage and exploitation. It's an exploitation of of low-income whites for the sake of justifying and and even strengthening racism but the racism is real and we make a mistake if we focus from charlottesville if we focus more on the white supremacists who marched than the white supremacy underneath all of this white supremacy as a system is still underneath 
everything in America, our structures, our systems. And, and we make a mistake, and I think uh, progressive whites make a mistake by saying, oh, I'm not one of them, I'm not like them. When it's time to look at the white supremacy underneath the white supremacist and these angry young men who are marching, are their grievances? Sure. But we have to remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about a decision we made a long time ago to, to treat indigenous people and kidnapped Africans as if they were not made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. That was a sin. And, and, and now we're becoming a nation uh, that will no longer be a white majority nation uh, before long, and that changed to a nation of minorities being the, the, the majority is a deeply troubling thing to whites who are fearful and angry. And Donald Trump is using, I think he's creating a white force, if you will, a white force to try and, and hold back racial progress and deny those demographic changes. So this is finally in the end about racism, but economics is used and exploited and, and, and abused to get low-income whites to uh, subscribe to racism. Yeah. Uh, I also want to welcome to the conversation Charlie Ballard. He's an economist at Michigan State University. Charlie, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So what we're talking about here is is this idea of white anger in America, which we saw on display in Charlottesville a few weeks ago. But even before that, even before Donald Trump was elected to the presidency, we talked a lot about white anger over the economy, white anger about the idea that you can't just work one job for 40 years, get ahead enough to buy a house and send your kids to college and retire, that so many people are trapped in situations that require them to work many jobs and still not be able to do all of those things. Uh, Give us a sense from your perspective of how powerful that, uh, that lack of economic opportunity is and how it shapes these other dynamics that we're seeing now that uh, Trump is in office. I think it's very powerful. I, I certainly don't want to discount the, the racism that you've been talking about. I think that's a very important part of it. But I think that's been amplified by um, economic stress. You look at America in 1973, it was almost impossible to find anybody whose family wasn't way better off than they were 30 years before. Uh, that's largely because we had uh, very rapid productivity growth, the economy was growing fast, and for a whole host of reasons, um, everybody was sharing in that prosperity. Uh, then after the early to middle 70s, we had a, for most of the time since then, we've had uh, slower economic growth, so the, the pie hasn't been growing as fast. And the growth that there has been has been uh, taken almost exclusively by those at the very top. You know, hedge fund managers, uh, CEOs, um, and uh, those with the most education and skill have done very well. Uh, in, in many cases, extraordinarily well. Mm-hmm. But the average citizen has made very little progress. And so you, uh, I really believe that if we had had the same kind of economic growth in the last 40 years that we had in the 30 years before that, uh, these racial divisions, they would still be there, but I don't think you would see them to the same uh, uh, ugly extent because economic growth can 
uh, and, and increase in incomes can, can serve as a sort of a safety valve. And, and that's been taken away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guests are Reverend Jim Wallace. He's an author and civil rights activist, president and founder of Sojourners. I'm also talking with Charlie Ballard, an economist from Michigan State University. We are talking about white anger, the white anger that we saw on display in Charlottesville a few weeks ago, white anger that we've seen sort of festering in the background of the discussion about America for many years in terms of the economy. Are those two things related or are those two things quite separate? Maybe the anger over economics really is about race at its core. Uh, Charlie Ballard just said that uh, those things are not as related, that if we'd had stronger economic growth over the past several decades, that we wouldn't maybe see as much of this overt kind of racism as we do. What do you think? What do you think about the relationship between those two things? Give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page. Put your comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Valerie in Metro Detroit. Valerie, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, and thank you for taking my call. Sure. I, I um, pretty much believe that there is um, the underpinnings are on both sides. There's some anger and frustration regarding the uh, dominant or the Caucasian race being depleted as a, as a majority and seeing the rise of other ethnicities in this country, both on economical and as far as living in various areas where um, at one time were predominantly white. People are moving around and backgrounds and educational experiences are different. So I'm finding that um, one of the things that one of your, pre- your previous guests said uh-huh. that uh, Valerie, if you could if you could speak more directly into the phone, I think we could. I'm sorry, you're telling me I need to talk louder. Yeah, just to go go ahead. Your previous, yes, I'm sorry. Your your previous guest said that the economical, I'm sorry, the educational base of uh, the African American community, um, pretty much. He gave some numbers that were very disparaging. When I have had to both look at and do some background work and research for my thesis. Uh, for different areas of the country, and I did find different areas of the metro Detroit area, mm-hmm. and I found that there were very low incomes in both the Caucasian as well as the African American community in certain uh, in certain areas of the city. And then I started looking at the numbers of the education and the degrees and the diplomas that people were getting, and African Americans have increased significantly. And subsequently, they've also increased the numbers of the um, the white collar jobs that are being held, mm-hmm. and you know they're now going into some of the skilled trades where before it was whatever you could get. So those numbers have changed significantly. So I'm not certain where his numbers are coming from, or you know the, um, the well. I mean, I think. You're saying that 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 African Americans are not experiencing as much poverty, uh, perhaps as as uh, Joe Fegan from Texas A&M. Said? That's ex- that's exactly what I'm saying, and thank you for being eloquent with it. Okay, it's that's not okay. the same as it was with with uh, those that were 20 or 30 years ago trying to get into the workforce. 
Yeah. It's uh, changed significantly. Right. Valerie, thanks very much for the call and, the, and the comments. I want to give my current guests a, a chance to respond to that, and I'll start with, with Charlie Ballard. Of course, we have seen black progress economically in America over the last couple of decades. It hasn't been universal, and it hasn't been as much as I think most people would, would, would want it to be. Talk about how that compares, though, to the situation uh, that white Americans face. It's a very mixed picture. I've actually done some some research on this, and uh, what we see is that, um, on average, African Americans made progress relative to their white counterparts, um, especially in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Since 2000, they haven't done uh, nearly as well, um, and they haven't done nearly as well, especially here in the upper Midwest. After all, if you look at the African-American population in Michigan, um, 1.4 million people, uh, most of them are descendants of people who came north during the middle decades of the 20th century. And why did they come here? They came here largely because they were looking for jobs in the manufacturing sector and especially in automobiles. Well, the decline of manufacturing in general and autos in particular has meant that the the jobs base that provided um, economic security not for blacks and whites but disproportionately for blacks that has declined so blacks have not made much progress in fact they've in many cases uh, lost ground relative to whites in the last 15 years but if you look at the 50 years since the civil rights act the especially in the middle parts of the income distribution african americans have made substantial progress and yet they still remain well below their white counterparts. Uh, in terms of earnings for the full-time year-round workers, both uh, for men, uh, the, the median black man makes about 80% as much as the median white man. For women, it's something better than that. In the most recent year, about 87%, but still a big gap between black and white, even after all of the progress that we had, especially in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jim Wallace, talk about how black economic progress, in your view, has helped either shape or maybe fuel some of the anger that we see on the white side of the equation. Is that one one of the dynamics that we're seeing play out here? Well, I think Valerie is right, and, and Dr. Ballard from my alma mater, Michigan State, is also right that these are deeply connected, the economics and the race. Um, uh, uh, so so the, the, as I, when I was on your show last time, I remember I talked about how when my dad came out of the Navy uh, and we got an FHA loan for mm-hmm. a house mm-hmm. and a GI, and GI Bill, and so when your government gives you education and a house, it makes you middle class. So my government made my white family middle class. But black GIs didn't get the same treatment as white GIs did. Same more guys on my dad's ship didn't get the same treatment because of Jim Crow in the South, because of loaning policies in, in Detroit. So in Redford Township, all of the houses were three-bedroom ranch houses headed by white GIs. So uh, Dr. Ballard is right, though, how, you know, the old phrase, a rising tide lifted all boats. That was true after World War II up until almost 1980. So the rising tide did help everyone, even those on the bottom. But then the caricature is the rising tide lifts all yachts, 
which is what would happen, as he pointed out, after 1980 when the profits went to the very top. So there is black you know, progress, but as he pointed out, uh, in 2016, the white male unemployment rate was 4.4%. In 2016, the black male unemployment rate was 9.1%. That's uh, double. And when you talk about family wealth, which is always tied to things like, like housing, uh, uh, it, it, the wealth gap is even greater. So I think sometimes people see progress. They see television progress and all the rest. But, but underneath, uh, you know, in places like Ferguson and Baltimore, the, 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 the real lack of opportunity, particularly for young black youth, uh, is still extraordinary and leads to a lot of anger. And then the anger of whites who feel they're left out and left behind, too. It's anger versus anger. And that's being deliberately politically exploited by the president uh, for his own self-interest and yeah. political purposes. And that's what's so sad. And that is a very, there's very dangerous outcomes to that kind of racial d- divisiveness. So, yeah, if economics are better for all, that does reduce tensions. Dr. Bell is absolutely right. So fighting for economic justice and equality is cr- critical in the battle for racial justice. But, but racism itself, because of its history, the narrative of what we are not yet over has to be central to this whole conversation. All right, we're going to take another quick break here. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about the rise of white anger in America and about the intersection between lack of economic opportunity and racial tensions. Stay with us and stay with us in the conversation. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll be right back. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guests are Reverend Jim Wallace. He's an author, civil rights activist, and president and founder of Sojourners. Also with us is Charlie Ballard. He's an economist at Michigan State University. We are talking about white anger, the white anger that was on display a few weeks ago in Charlottesville, for instance. Is that tied to the white economic despair that so many people uh, attribute to Donald Trump's win in 2016. What do you think? What do you think about the rise of white anger or the visible rise, I guess, of white anger in America? And do you think there's an intersection between that and the economic problems that we see that have really changed the way people live? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work your comments into the conversation. Jacob on Facebook says, economic opportunities are moot if we continue to tribalize politics based on immutable characteristics. As to the question of white anger, it's largely due to being maligned as sympathetic to historic repression that they don't support. The optics of highly educated individuals and coastal politicians lecturing, drink a six, smoke a pack, work a 50, and hope to retire at 65, Johnny, about his privilege is laughable to me. But the Johnnies I know get 
pretty ticked. I thought that was a very interesting summation of the kind of feelings that we're seeing in America right now. If you want to share your feelings about that, again, go to Facebook, the WDET page, or go to Twitter and hashtag us. We'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Chris in West Bloomfield. Chris, welcome to Detroit today. Thank you so much for having this conversation today, Stephen. Sure. Um, you know, I was thinking, I was reminded of the uh, Gordon Gecko quote from Wall Street, the greed is good. Um, you know, there's, there's the economic fundamentals of capitalism are that people compete against one another. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, I mean, if you listen to the libertarians or the, the capital purists, they want to do away with the minimum wage, which just means more competition among the workers. And I think that no matter, and I'm white, I'm from the suburbs, and, and I'm surrounded by people who've done pretty well. And, you know, sometimes they think that we share views, and so they share things with me candidly. And, you know, there is definitely this view that they could always be doing better if not for the drag on the economy. And I don't care how well the economy is doing, you know, these email chains go around with these snarky comments, um, and it's definitely around the economics. And I don't know, and these are people who are doing well, like they have 401ks, their, their kids are going to college. Um, and yet there's always this sense that they could be doing better. And, and that is sort of inherent to capitalism. And, you know, I don't know how we, how we escape that. Like, yeah. there's, like there's a lot of resentment towards women in the workforce as well. And this is going to sound really silly, but, I mean, if you look at communist times, I mean, Stalin was an awful person, but women had a lot of positions of power in, <laughs> in the Soviet Union. And, and I think that that is the uh, same with China. If you look at China through the 50s and 60s, yeah. I think there's something inherent to our economic system that that's creates a, tension. That's a really interesting that's a really interesting observation, Chris. I'm glad you called and made it. And I want to give both our guests a chance to respond to that. Uh, I'll start with you, Charlie Ballard. Is there something afoot here about the way capitalism works that, number one, makes it necessary for one group of people to feel a rivalry or a threat from another group of people. Uh, also, is there something that has changed about capitalism that makes the pie smaller and so makes those rivalries more intense? I don't think there's anything that's written into stone. Um, capitalism uh, can be managed and regulated in all sorts of different ways. And what we saw in the United States in the, in the 30s and 40s was a whole bunch of deliberate government decisions that uh, restrained the excesses of capitalism in ways that were not beneficial to the top 1% necessarily, but that were very beneficial to the bottom 99%. And since the 70s, we have seen deliberate policy actions uh, that were that reversed or slowed down those changes. And so what we had in the middle of the 20th century was a huge equalization. The, the, the 99% did much better. And since 1970s, it's been the reverse. Well, we had capitalism in both cases, but what we had was different laws and different institutions, and so that gets to the politics. And my view is that you look at the, the all the New Deal legislation that Franklin Roosevelt signed. Well, all of that stuff, the Social Security Act, the Fair Labor Standards Act that made it, uh, that instituted the minimum wage, the National Labor Relations Act that made it easier for unions to organize, all of that was very progressive legislation, and yet 
it got through Congress that was dominated by racist Southern whites. How did that happen? Well, because blacks were generally left out. Then the 60s, the, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, the Civil Rights Movement, uh, you, you began to see an erosion of white support for progressive, uh, for progressive stuff. And so whites, especially in the South, went from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. And you have this paradoxical thing of poor whites, because of racial alienation and other things, voting for uh, representatives in Congress and for presidents who would then enact laws that were unfavorable to those very same mm -hmm. uh, poor whites. And so uh, I hope that I've been able to articulate here uh, another connection between the economics on the one hand and the racial issues on the other. Sure, sure. Uh, Jim Wallace, talk about capitalism's role here. Historically, of course, capitalism is very tied to racial inequality, uh, but is it also a pathway to more racial harmony. I mean, is it is it uh, is it that the the widening of the pie, for instance, might help us all? Well, Dr. Ballard pointed out well. I think that that policy, big policy choices and decisions, were made in the New Deal era to, in fact, uh, try to make uh, the market more fair. It's just that things aren't always fair. Mm -hmm. It's not fair by by intention. Government has to make it more fair. Uh, and and so uh, that's always the the question: How fair is is the competition? And when you know when uh, when when black families coming back from World War II didn't get the GI Bill and FHA loan like my family did, that put them in my generation at a real disadvantage, even economically. And today, to today, all the data shows that that if uh, you know kids, young people that apply for jobs today. If their name is 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 Jamal, uh, they will get back fewer responses mm -hmm. from employers mm -hmm. than if their name is Harry. Uh, and so, and interviews, all the data all, also shows that when uh, young blacks turn up for interviews, they don't do as well as young whites. So all of this is still true. So the economics is central here, and yet race is always a factor in decision-making. And so you've got to work at both simultaneously. You've got to work on uh, racial justice is requiring economic equity as well. And so really these shouldn't be separated. These are causes that, in fact, uh, really mobilize the faith community, which I'm part of. In fact, a good example of what Dr. Bell is talking about was his health care bill. Mm -hmm. This health care bill that was uh, we just defeated by a single vote that health care bill would have taken away, it would have ended Medicaid as we know it. Ended Medicaid, which is, this is one of those big, big issues from the new, new, new Deal, it would have ended it, and it would have hurt. It would have hurt white families that voted for Donald Trump in places like Michigan. And yet that wasn't clear to a lot of those families. And so we literally, a number of state leaders, were literally outside the Senate chambers on the day they, had, they voted having a prayer vigil outside and inviting senators when they're winning the vote to come and pray with us. <laughs> and we literally did that, not knowing how, what would happen. And in fact, uh, three Republicans voted against that bill. But those kind of decisions are totally against the interests of not just uh, you know uh, low-income black families, but, but white families. And, 
and you know uh, Medicaid serves the most vulnerable people, and that would have been just destroyed ultimately. So these are issues at stake in our public policy debates right now. And Dr. Ballard set a historical context for it, but that's still going on. It will be going on around health care, around infrastructure, around uh, tax, uh, tax reform, ending of regulations. The Republican side wants to end regulations, and they, they want to end those New Deal deals. And that's the issue that's at stake here. Yeah. Uh, we've got about two minutes left. I want to get from both of you. Uh, just a quick idea about how we move forward. How do we get past the the space where we have uh, hundreds of white men with torches uh, and angry expressions gathering around a, a Confederate statue to to sort of express themselves uh, about what's going on in America? What's what's the way forward, uh, Jim Wallace? I'll start with you. Well, one of those, uh, one of the uh, monuments to the Confederacy still standing is uh, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, who's mm. the Attorney General. <laughs> and he is pushing back uh, any reform in the criminal justice system and further embedding implicit, explicit racism in our criminal justice structures. And so those issues, voter suppression, uh, criminal justice reform, making things fair. Uh, that's the way forward, and this is what, what can move us all forward. And we have to get to this win-win. The president is pursuing a policy of win-lose. Yeah. Everything is who wins, who loses. We have to get to a deeper, higher moral ground of how do we all win here and what's best for all our families. Okay, Charlie Ballard, what do we do to Yeah, to I, I think that there are win-wins out there. Um, it, at least win-win for almost all Americans. Um, if you increase the minimum wage, at least modestly, that will help low-income people, both black and white. Um, if we strengthen the earned income tax credit and if we expand Medicare, that will help low-income people, both black and white. And remember that even though poverty, the poverty rate is substantially higher for African Americans than for whites, Whites outnumber blacks by a huge margin. Thus, most poor people in America are white. And so if we take policies that address poverty, no matter what the color of the individual, we will help blacks disproportionately, but we will also help a lot of low-income whites. Yeah. Okay, Reverend Jim Wallace, author, civil rights activist, and president and founder of Sojourners. Thank you for joining us on Detroit Today. My blessing. Also, Charlie Ballard, economist at Michigan State University. Thank you for being here. Thanks very much. That's going to do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. Detroit Today is produced by Laura Weber Davis and Jake Neer. Program director is Joan Isabella. Technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Associate producer is Gus Navarro. And our theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. This is WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. See you tomorrow.